Welcome to Unframed, a podcast which hosts talks and conversations about South African art and artists. I am your host, Anthea Pakroy. This episode is from a talk that I recorded at this year's Investor Cape Town Art Fair as part of their talks program curated by Tamela Mosaka. Thanks so much to the organizers of the fair for allowing me to record this session and publish it on the Unframed platform. If you are interested, you can read the biographies of the panelists on the website, unframedpodcast.com. Enjoy this talk entitled Artist in Dialogue, a conversation between artists Kemang Waluhulere and Francois Xavier Goubre. Here today with Francois Xavier and with Kemang, who are going to be talking with us, because I would like to open the conversation to the floor as well about the practice and the way they do engage through the work audiences in different contexts. So it's going to be quite informal. It, you know, it's a group of friends. I see many friends in the audience. So don't be shy. You know, call our attentions if you have questions from the floor. And um, we're going to have a PowerPoint presentation, like a slideshow, running just to show you some examples of the work of the two artists, and there could be maybe even an opportunity for us to familiarize ourselves if we are not as yet familiar with the work of uh, Francoise and uh, Kemang. So I'm going to go very briefly through their bios, also because I didn't know I had to do it, but, <laughs> but also because they are so... Uh, uh, in demand, and they've been participating in so many different events, so I'm going to cut it a little bit short, but just to give you a little bit of contextual information I think is important. So I'm going to start with uh, Francois, uh, Francois-Xavier Crebre, who was born in Lille in France, and uh, is currently living between, I guess, Europe and uh, uh, Abidjan in, in the Ivory Coast. And a lot of his work, as we will see soon, uh, is connected somehow to this moving continuously as a pendulum between like, you know, different realities and different dimensions. Um, he graduated in photography at l'Ecole Supérieure de Montpellier in France, and um, his work has been shown in many different venues lately. Uh, the exhibition Sogno d'Oltremare, the Museum Man in Italy, in, as well as the La Villette in Paris, then the Denver Art Museum, the Walker, uh, sorry, the Walter Collections in Germany, uh, as well as the Canterfritz Gerald Gallery in Haverford College, and he has been um, his work has been acquired by important institutions such as the Centre Pompidou in Paris, the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, the Tate Modern in London, Queensland Gallery of Modern Art in Brisbane, Australia and the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Uh, amongst his uh, solo shows, as we said, they were, they, uh, there's gonna be this year, I think that's probably the, what we might want to highlight. It's gonna take part in the Le Contre d'Arles, which is one of the most important festivals of photography in the world, I believe. And obviously it's here with, uh, uh, with his gallery, and if you haven't had the chance to see the, the solo presentation he has as his booth, I would recommend you to do that today after the talk. For Kemang, Kemang is a Captonian, so uh, you probably all know his work and uh, better than I do, actually. Uh, he was born in Cape Town and he has um, a BA in Fine Arts degree at the University of uh, Withwards Friend. And he had so many solo exhibitions, of which I'm going to mention only a few, if only I could go back to the page. 
Um, so he has uh, sold exhibitions at, uh, in Switzerland, at the Max in Rome, at the Deutsche Bank Kunsthalle, the Art Institute of Chicago, guest work in London, Lombard Fried projects in New York, the Gazette Institute in Johannesburg in 2011, the Associ Association of Visual Arts in Cape Town in 2009, and he's represented by Stevenson and Marianne Goodman Gallery. He took part in numerous uh, biennials and periodical exhibitions, including the last Venice Biennale, I believe, and the Sharjah Biennale, um, amongst many others. Um, he was a co-founder of the Cuckoo Collective in 2006, and uh, we're going to speak about that a little bit, if you don't mind, and also one of the founding members of the Center for Historical Reenactments in Johannesburg. So, without further ado, uh, if we can play the... I would like to start maybe this conversation by by asking you something a little bit banal, but which I don't think is necessarily, is like, when was the moment where you guys realized that you were a fully accomplished artist with like recognition? Like not only thinking that you were an artist, but it was actually, your work was starting to be taken seriously uh, by audiences and, and critics and the establishment, I guess. Is there any moment where you realized that there was like you no know, sort of transition where your work started to be have a weight? <laughs> you both have a mic, <laughs> or if you don't particularly like the question, we can move to the next one. <laughs> uh, no. um, I think for me, that's a, it's hard to answer that question because for the longest time I I didn't think I would end up as an artist, even though I was making art. Um, even up to the point where I finished my degree, um, I didn't think I would be a practicing artist. So um, it's a bit hard for me. Um, and this happened because I went to university with the hope that I would become an art historian. Um, and for me, making art was something that I was doing because I could do it. Um, but of course, I was exhibiting. Um, locally and internationally at the same time. Um, and that's just kind of, I found myself, yeah. 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 <coughs> I do believe that you, Francois, started as a commercial photographer pretty much, or in the realm of photography, but not necessarily as, as an artist. Yeah, as a commercial photographer, as an assistant before. And uh, I, I think I wanted to be an artist. I'm, I was interested in art. I was jealous of my friends <laughs> working and studying like uh, visual arts at school when my parents forced me to study like scientific stuff so, <laughs> so it was a long journey to to, to get there yeah. so you were start doing like you know side projects your individual project alongside what you were you know needing to do by profession and then you, you gradually took over in a sense right yeah in the commercial fields I, uh, I got the skills and uh, I think, I think 13 years ago, I decided to do what I want to do, what I want to speak about, the stories I want to tell, and, and it started like this, the shift. And how do you see the difference, and then obviously we're going to alternate like no questions, but how do you see the difference between working in photography in the domain of photography to core, as opposed to working in photography in the realm of contemporary art? Do you, what, what do you think are the differences? Is there a different audience? Is there a different set of rules that you have to follow or? No, <laughs> you, you free yourself. 
No, but what I mean, obviously, like, you know, when you're speaking in, within the realm of photography as commercial photography, mm -hmm. could, they could be, like, you know, a reportage, it could be journalism, it could be, like, you know, uh, design, and I know they've been working in many different kinds of domains in that, in that sense. Obviously, the way you engage the audiences, because the talk today is also about how do you use, you know, strategies to engage audiences differently through your work. So I'm assuming that when you're speaking to someone who's looking at the magazine, for example, obviously, you know, you, you use a different strategy as opposed to when you are... In a, in a gallery or in a museum environment where you need to think about like you know three-dimensionally about the you know, the way that the photography is perceived and I know you work very tirelessly actually in kind of creating different uh, compositions different presentations three you know sculptural presentations as well as installations so it's not only straightforward photography mm -hmm. as it would normally you know assume for uh, standard photography uh, parameters I'm telling you everything. <laughs> you told, you told everything. I'm basically giving you the answer as well as the question. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and in terms of um, um, of language and and um, and devices, really, that you can use quite repeatedly in your work, I, I noticed there are elements. Uh, uh, the birdhouse is one, but like you know, the porcelain dogs, etc., which are quite recurrent in your work. How do they come into your vocabulary and how you, do you use them and how do they translate from uh, body work to the next? We actually have some images now running. So um, the material I've been working with for the last, I think, five years probably um, has been um, school desks. Um, which I buy um, either from schools or at scrapyards. Mm -hmm. um, but these are old school tests which are being phased out of schools. Um, in fact, I learned through acquiring these that um, a lot of schools closed down in the country, um, which is quite sad, actually. And this is how I oftentimes get the desks. Um, schools that don't perform uh, to a certain standard, mm -hmm. the government closes them down. Um, uh, so I'd been uh, so for me I'd always been interested in education and history um, and that was primarily because in my high school we only did history for two years right. um, and we touched on South African history probably for only three months right. um, which I found very sad uh, as a South African and not learning about South African history, we learned about the Romans and um, everybody else except for South African history. And for me, this was, um, this sparked a curiosity and interest actually, which has been, I would say, the basis of my artistic practice, is a desire to, to uncover or, or there's a search um, for knowledge or memory and history. Um, so the materials I've been using kind of speak to that in a way directly and metaphorically. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the porcelain dogs, um, uh, it's, a, it's something that's quite common in most South African homes. Um, uh, I would say working class homes primarily. Um, this is a cross race actually. Um, I grew up obviously mostly seeing it in black homes but I've also seen in white homes, um, and I think it's something that is shared ac across um, the working classes. Um, so 
I began an interest with the dogs when I read, um, uh, what's his name, Ujlomo. Uh, he wrote a, a short story called The Dog Killers, um, which was about uh, set in the mines um, in Johannesburg. Uh, but also um, here in Cape Town, um, when Simonstown was deemed uh, whites only uh, area, uh, black folk were moved from Simonstown to Kuguletu, and some other people were moved to Ocean View. So the colored folks were sent that way. And also people weren't allowed to have dogs, to keep dogs. So whoever had um, kept uh, pet dogs, um, those dogs were killed. Um, in fact, I'm told by um, a writer who had been moved, she said that actually there's a mass grave um, where wow. they buried all the dogs in Ocean View. So. Um, the dogs, uh, like I've been interested in the dogs also because um, when I was a kid we had this superstitious belief that if you took the sleep from a dog's eye and put it on your own you would be able to see into a spiritual realm. Um, but I was too scared to try this as a kid. Um, <laughs> like I don't know um, what I might see. Um, so, but it, it remained with me, I, I became fascinated with this. Um, uh, and then I began to think about it more poetically and then to, to rather think um, in what in, in history they call uh, period eyes. Mm -hmm. um, so I began to think about the dog sleep as a way of seeing um, through layers, um, whether it's layers of time or memory. Um, yeah, I think I'm talking too much. No, no, <laughs> well, I think, you know, going back out now to Francoise, it's just, uh, if I understand it correctly, your work also kind of relates to personal histories, but also in a way that how personal histories and biographies, they do have a collective dimension and a political dimension. So maybe we could speak now a little bit about your project in, uh, in the Avery Coast and how you eventually returned, because I believe your father was originally from there, although you were born in France, and this is almost like a return to your roots and also a way out to, I guess, to how to analyze or to reimagine by proxy your personal history by you know, re-entering into, into the country and looking into the country with uh, poetical as well as political eyes, I guess. Yeah, so, um, so I was born in France from an Ivorian father and my mother is French and Polish, so I'm kind of uprooted. And uh, when you grow in France in the 80s, you don't find at school all the information of where you are coming from. So. I think all my work is about filling the gaps. Yeah, In my education, yeah, similar to Kemen. And um, I think I, I started to photograph abandoned buildings because there was this textile crisis in the north of France, which is Lille, is a kind of city like Manchester or Liverpool. And so we suffered a lot about this, and my father worked in a factory. And uh, this abandoned factory became our playground. And uh, then when I started photography, that was the first subject. And uh, then I was curious about uh, more about Africa and Ivory Coast and the other countries. And I started to photograph uh, other abandoned places, but uh, that was built during the colonial era. Mm -hmm. And um, just I started to question 
how these uh, how independent countries deal with this uh, colonial heritage and uh, how you deal with the function and how you maintain the, the huge building and what do you do with this? And, uh, and maybe, yeah, you don't see anybody on my pictures because it's kind of empty and I'm just questioning, I'm just searching. Yeah, we spoke about the complete absence of, sorry, is it very loud? <laughs> Sounds very, okay. Uh, the complete absence of the human body in your, in, in your work, which does two things to my mind. One of which, obviously, without having a physical presence, is harder to locate it geographically. I mean, there's much more open interpretation of what their place could be or where it could be. And the other thing which does, it, it has almost like... Um, by depriving any preset narrative, for example, like you know the north or western perspective or into or look into Africa by removing the the African body in a sense, you're not validating stories which are built on that body by somebody else. So it's kind of something interesting. It's like displacing the images as well as not really giving you what you would expect it to get from a body of work made in a specific region. That's what I'm trying to say. And so if this is your conscious choice, what, what's, your, what's really your, your strategy by not giving any hint into that? It's really about like, you know, creating a more abstract space, a more lyrical space without necessarily being so didactic, I guess? Mm -hmm. Or is there just avoiding other narratives that they might be put into your work by interpretation? Or I'm, I'm curious, I'm just literally, I, I, obviously I don't have an answer for that, but. It was more my feeling, look at, at, the work, at the work being so empty, right? And so present, and so the presence of a man, and man work is evident in every single piece, but at the same time, there's no manhood or humanity into it. Yes, I think there are two different, different ideas or two different approaches. Uh, in the track series with the old abandoned buildings, it's like I want to be, anyone could be part of the pictures and to it's like a theater, and you can go through the images by yourself. And uh, they are abandoned, so they are, there is nobody. Mm -hmm. uh, in Abidjan, it's like I just want to show what the human are making. And uh, yeah, how, how, how do we build our environment? And uh, yeah, it's mostly this, and it's my own journey. It's not the journey of someone else. It's just my Abidjan. So. Yeah. And um, and you were talking about black bodies and white bodies, but uh, in Abidjan you can find both, even of course, yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Lebanon bodies. So of course, it, it could be anywhere. <laughs> no, that's what I'm saying. But I mean, without having like the visual references, it becomes yeah. like you know. Sometimes I'm looking at the images. It could be like you know Eastern Europe, or it could be like you know so many different other places. And that's mm. interesting how you, yeah. you know, the interplay. Because obviously, if I were to come into an image which obviously speaks of a specific region, I think I will bring my own set of knowledge of interpretation into that by, by not having it. Obviously, you know, I have to live in a different dimension in, 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 in some sense. So I quite like the fact that it becomes so ambivalent and is now obviously so descriptive, right? In the yeah, but uh, in all my works, I try to have this confusion because I don't know. I'm just asking questions. So you don't know if it's built or if it's half destroyed, you don't know if it's under construction or... And I like this confusion, like the not to know and always... Which always direction searching. is going, yeah. yeah. 
What's your, both for both of you, I think, what's your kind of thinking process like? How do you start working on a project? Do you start, I'm assuming, by ideas, by sketches, or by intuitions, or what's your kind of production modality? If there is one standard one, or if every project is a different one, probably. But do you have, a, a, I guess, a methodology for initiating a work? No. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, think I kind of thought that you wouldn't. But <laughs> I mean, there, there is a kind of methodology in a way, but um, because uh, my work is um, so different, um, uh, it requires different uh, uh, strategies continuously. Um, so if I'm working on a body of drawings, there's a methodology to that. Um, if I'm doing sculpture or I'm working on a performance piece, um, so it, it's really, I'd say it's governed by what the what the idea wants. Because um, I think from a conceptual premise, and then um, it's about how how does this thing want to materialize. Um, there's only so much I can push, uh, but also. The, the ideas have to un almost unfold themselves. Um, a case in point is a project that I'm working on now, um, uh, which is called I Love You Too, um, uh, which will be uh, hosted at the Zeitz Museum. Um, uh, and this is, uh, it's a performance piece, but I'm not in the performance myself. Um, I have a misuse who, who offers a massage for free to the public um, <clears throat> or to the museum staff uh, on condition that they sit to the writer while they're being massaged, uh, writer, poet, slash musician. Um, some of these people I was, I'm working with, they double or they're musicians who I consider poets. Um, so they sit with the member of the public and then they help them write a love letter which they take home um, and these letters will be archived um, documented and archived uh, and will be published uh, next year July um, so a project like that for example requires a different type of thinking I can't have a methodology for that um, I did some workshop in the in the museum to test it out before opening it up to the public um, because obviously like a lot of things come up especially when you're working with other people um, and I assume especially here in South Africa with the kind of trauma that we have as a nation mm -hmm. a lot of things are going to come out that um, already in the workshop uh, session one woman cried um, you know which is not something I would have expected um, uh, so yeah, I think it's, it's, it's different um, if I'm working individually or collectively or if I'm collaborating with someone, it requires a completely different um, approach. Um, sure, you say something about this last project, which was, it really touched me because generally we know of the love letters only of the people who are famous or worth you know, being reminded and you know through the archives or through literature but you know we don't really know much about the love of anybody else and i think that's actually one of the most 
beautiful points of your of your project is just to have all of this kind of wasted love basically which has no no real anchor no real point for collections and for uh, resonating really I think is a it's very very poetic and touching project I got another uh, question more still related to practice I guess and still related to how you develop your projects but but it's more related I think to authorship how do you see yourself when you work as a collective, for example, and how do you see yourself when you work as an individual artist who often collaborates? I know that you do collaborate with many people, so it's never really a process in total isolation. And I think you also did a project in collaboration with people recently. Maybe we can talk about that as well in, uh, in dialogue with uh, what Kamanga is going to say. Oh, I go first. You go, well, <laughs> we, we were continuing the conversation. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, we can probably have six of here. Uh, no, now. Because um, uh, I think how, that's how I remember missing you. You were still very active in both the collectives that we, we mentioned at the beginning. And, uh, and then I think your individual career or individual trajectory became you know, very solid and very, very established. And so I, I wonder whether these collaborations are still going on, whether you still see yourself as like, you know, splitting your activity between these different dimensions. But most importantly, how do you conceive as an individual artist as opposed to you know, a, a dialogue with other artists and practitioners? Uh, <clears throat> so I think the, um, it was never really a choice to work collectively or not, um, uh, some like many years ago, we we um, we established the Google Collective, which was a Cape Town-based art, art collective, um, and we started the collective for a number of reasons, um, which were at the time we considered institutional problems, both in Cape Town and in South Africa. Um, of course, the landscape now has shifted dramatically uh, compared to what. Um, 14 years ago, um, uh, there's more institutions, there's, uh, women are more visible, a lot has changed, of course, um, change can always uh, continue, but I think a lot has changed from uh, now, well, from then till now. Um, so I worked with this collective uh, for a number of time, and then <clears throat> I moved to Johannesburg to study. Which really, yes, I did. She <laughs> <laughs> um, <Yeah>, agrees. <laughs> um, so I moved to Johannesburg to study, and um, this really affected um, the relationship of the collective. Because um, I was carrying a lot of the administrative uh, work within the collective. Mm -hmm. So the collective took a knock um, from my absence but also it shifted how I saw myself. Um, for, for a short while, I was actually part of another collective in Johannesburg, um, which was called Dead Revolutionaries Club. Um, so we published, a, we had an online magazine basically, which, I mean, it didn't do as much as we had hoped, um, but we also screened films, we held talks, uh, we did exhibitions, um, and this was before I co-founded Center for Historical Reenactments with Ukabi. And Ukabi is someone whom I was always in dialogue with since I met her in 2005. Um, and in fact, she had curated a show in 2008, which I think was quite key in um, 
my relationship with her in terms of how we would approach um, the Center for Historical Reenactments. She, Ukabe, had been part of a collective which is very little known, actually. Um, it uh, was called Manje Manje Projects. Uh, manje Manje means, uh, Manje Manje is, it means now, now. Um, and she had this collective with Mwenya Kabwe, who's a theater director. Um, so they curated the show um, called Scratching the Surface um, at a Kugulective, at the Kugulective uh, project space. And there I did a performance where I was digging with an Afrocomb over a period of three days and I discovered a skeleton. Um, and this was in someone's backyard. And this discovery of these bones uh, became like a, it was a haunting moment both for myself and Lukabi. And we, we continued speaking about this performance and what it meant even when she had gone to Bard College to study um, for her curatorial masters. And when, we, when she came back um, is when we started the, the Center for Historical Reenactments. So there was always a dialogue that was happening. Um, I, don't, I don't work with Sukabi anymore. Um, <clears throat> again, uh, with the Center for Historical Reenactments, uh, what happened was I moved to Amsterdam to go to the Reich's Academy. Um, and of course, this again affected the, the relationship within the collective. Udona um, Kukam was also part of the collective. In fact, at that time, we were traveling so much, all of us, that it was becoming really hard to even, uh, for us to even have a week, together. just one week together, um, to think and work. So it became, it became really difficult. Um, Kabi was traveling all the time, Dona, and we were all in different directions. Um, so it, it, for me, it felt like it didn't make sense anymore to keep or to try and hold on to something if um, the, our individual journeys were yeah. going separate ways. Um, yeah. And I think for you, Francois, it was more like a sort of a participatory project to become a sort of a collective work and enterprise. Can you probably just tell us a little bit about that experience? Uh, yeah, with Yoyo Gontier, my friend. <laughs> and we met like in 2009 in Bamako Biennial. And, uh, I love his work, and we started to look at the work of each other. And uh, so we have our own project. And uh, five years ago, we decided to start to work together and to create new narratives with all pictures, but not only all pictures, but we invited um, other artists that we, we like their work. And um, there is this project, so the Courtyard La Courde, and uh, in Bamako Biennial, we, when I was living in Bamako in 2011, 2013, I found out the old cinema, abandoned cinema in open air from the 60s. And this place is amazing, but it was like 20 years, there were no movie anymore. So we decided to reactivate the cinema. So we brought a projector, we cleaned the white wall, and we pasted huge photographs on the wall. So all photographs, but also photographs coming from archives and from other artists. And the idea of the courtyard is also to bring people to talk about art, so not only photography. And uh, so we started to fix the cinema, we fixed the chair, we didn't want to borrow chairs from another place, so we involved the, the guy who made the Carpet there. Yeah. yeah. 
So many people from the neighborhood came to help us to paste the photograph, to clean the street around, and that's the way we run this collaborative project. And uh, right now for this year, we are working in Clichy-sous-Bois and Montfermeil in France, in Les Banlieues. It's where the French riot started in mm -hmm. 2005. So it's very complicated to go around with a camera there because they are tired of people of coming to look at them. Yeah. So the most important part of the work is to create uh, a relationship and to talk with the people. And so we started to collect images that they did like when they arrived, maybe during the 70s. And uh, so we are working on this and we will do a kind of projection in an old place an old gymnasium that will be destroyed. So we are working not with, not only with other artists, but with normal people. <laughs> Is the cinema in Bamako still working? That was my question. Huh? Is the cinema in Bamako still working? Do you know? The cinema you, no, you um, restored? Actually, it became a, a venue for the inn. For last, the Biennale. La, for the ah, last okay. Biennale. Okay. But uh, images are still on the wall. They're so still on the wall, yeah, okay. But right. it's more, That's much better because there is dust. It's a little bit dirty now, so <laughs> it's much better. Um, going back to Kemang, I, got, um, I would like you to, to talk us a little bit about a project you did at Sharjah because we, we spoke the other day on the phone a little bit about that, but I, I went to see the show without knowing the story, obviously, and so I, I kind of familiarized myself with... Uh, with uh, the legacy of Gladys, but can you tell us a little bit about that project? I, I'm really personally interested, so I would like to share all of the information with you. So <laughs> I don't know if it's an image of that necessarily and the one we have here. Um, okay, so the, the work Lorenzo is referring to is um, a body of work that I developed um, in collaboration with my aunt, um, Sophia. Um, and this began um, by a chance encounter, I guess. I was going to visit her, um, her house in Kuguletu and then one of the neighbors saw my car parked outside and they came with um, a book uh, by, on, a book on Gladys Mkudlanjo, who is considered the first black woman painter in South Africa or the first black woman painter to have an exhibition. Um, <clears throat> so when this woman, the neighbor, gave the book, my aunt asked to see the book and she said, as she was going through the book, she said, oh, I knew this woman um, and I thought she was lying or joking. Um, she said, yeah, like I, I, I used to go to her house as a kid. I'm like, what? Um, she's like, yeah, she lives around the corner from here, um, which is where I grew up, so I was like, no ways. Um, so I went to find the house um, and the man who currently lives there has no relationship to Gladys um, and I began uh, also my curiosity was sparked by the fact that my aunt told me that um, Gladys had painted murals inside the house um, and on the ceiling as well um, so I went there um, curious to see if these murals would still be there. Um, and this is largely because I myself have been making chalk drawings, um, so, but not this particular image you're looking at, but these are chalk drawings with wall carvings, which actually 
this is an extension of um, uh, the ideas that come from, from this body of work. Mm. Um, because uh, at the time I used to make uh, these large murals which would then get erased after an exhibition. So I was curious about these murals in Gulanju's old house. Um, so I went and of course the murals were not there. Um, but then I had to figure out the way of how to uncover um, uh, these layers of paint. So I did some research, spoke to some conservators. Um, I tried to get a hold of a camera from Sweden, uh, from the, what's this camera company? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so I found out that they had a, a three, what was, infrared scanning camera. Um, so I got in dialogue with these people, but I think when they found out that I want to use the camera in Google Earth, they changed the story. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they actually referred me to like the regional manager here in Cape Town, who I met a number of times. Um, so I had to, again, devise a different strategy. I was like, okay, shit. Um, so fortunately, I met this woman called um, Bettina, who is an art restorer, conservator. Um, so we went to the house and did some tests. Um, and the man who lives there, like, he um, didn't care about art. So I asked him, like, with his permission, of course, to, to uh, peel away some layers of paint. And he was okay with it, uh, as long as he said, I can do whatever I want, as long as I uh, fix his wall. Um, <laughs> and put it back to, yeah, the, yeah. Yeah, to whatever state I found it in. So we did some tests, and then, but in the, in the process, um, and the, okay, so I was, at the time I'd received the Standard Bank uh, Artist of the Year Award and I'd been working on this body of work. I was meant to present a show for Standard Bank and I was running out of time um, because of the back and forth with the hazard blood people and the cameras and Bettina. Also the man who lives in this house, he, he's mentally unstable. Um, so he goes into hospital like twice, like once, like for two weeks of the month, he's, he's institutionalized. Um, and it's because of uh, trauma that he experienced uh, as a former military uh, MK veteran who was part of the military wing of the ANC. Um, and uh, so it was hard to access the house generally. I'd go and visit the guy. He didn't have a phone, it was really, so in the end, Gladys and Kulanjo's works were coming up on auction um, so I started to buy them. Um, and then in the meantime, like I, would, I kept questioning my aunt because I couldn't trust her memory actually because she had suffered uh, traumatic experiences as a teenager during the student uprisings. Um, so I was like, mm, I'm not sure I actually believe the story that there's murals here. So I invited her to the studio to come and recreate the images that she remembered seeing. And that's how really we began the relationship of me collaborating with her, which has been something that's been ongoing. So what I did eventually, um, uh, <clears throat> also, also I measured the, the room of the, the living room of this house and then recreated that in the studio, um, but painted it with blackboard paint and asked my aunt to recreate the, the space as she remembered. So this I filmed. Um, I think the film was on a charge also. Mm -hmm. um, and then 
I gave her smaller blackboards to, to work on and chalk, which some of them I intervened in. Um, so we collaborated in a way. Um, and then eventually, um, because I was running out of time and I'd wanted to present this project for the Standard Bank, I decided to pair my, mine and her works with the Gladys and Kujanjo works that I'd bought. Um, but fortunately enough, uh, we did manage to uncover uh, part of the mural, which is also in the film. Um, so, yeah, that... Um, that kind of yeah. was a closure. <laughs> yeah, but that happened really at the end. And also, we were, the book was going out for publication. And I remember oh, Sophie at Stevenson, who was um, working on the book. In fact, the day we uncovered the mural, um, she was sitting there in the living room because she had to send the book off to, for printing. Um, but fortunately, we could document the process and then, and then send it off. Um, yeah, so <laughs> it was quite a crazy um, period. And going back to, to you, Francois, uh, there's one work who's um, in this lecture as well, which I would like you maybe to, to tell us a little bit about, which is the Je suis African in the, the Chinese lettering. Mm -hmm. That part of the project, I think it was very, very interesting. And, and if you could tell us a little bit more about that presentation, which I think it was, was he at the Dakar Biennale or? Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, the Wolf Shifeizu. And few people understood it in that <laughs> the context. <laughs> they, were not, they were not sure it was for, for me. And um, <laughs> nice that I have been photographing like building sites for years now, and um, in Senegal, in Mali, in Cote d'Ivoire, and uh, everywhere I cross Chinese working. So. <laughs> I started to think about who is building a new Africa, who is, who is African, and uh, in this new world where everybody is moving, and sure. the people are able to move, of course. And uh, yeah, so it started with the plates where I found the, the, like a dictionary, mm -hmm. where you can find the words in France and the Chinese and the translation in Chinese with only uh, words uh, that explain how to work, like sand, water, I mean the word you use on a building site, concrete, blocks, and um, so the work uh, just come from this, because it happened in Abidjan, in the, they were renewing the uh, cultural center in Abidjan, and years before I photographing this Olympic pool in Bamako, that was built by the US Union and that was renewing by a Chinese company like 50 years after. And um, in Bamako, there were also this um, bridge called the uh, Friend, uh, Pont de l'Amitié, from the friend, friendship between China and, uh, okay. and Mali. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and other cultural centers, uh, Omnisport, and uh, a lot of things, a museum in Dakar. So in this part of Africa, which is the one I know the best, I found them everywhere. everywhere. So that's all the question. So originally, these were like basically a, a, a manual, a textbook for you know communication between Chinese and African people, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah. they, are there like on paper on the, or was on, written on the, on the wall? wall? So yeah, so it's. it's and the, the, it's so the, the real process. Size, yeah. 
your process was to firstly you photograph them and then you, you start doing this kind of sculpture work out of it yeah. as well, right? After, yeah. This is something... With the, with the plywood, which represents the same writing that the, the Shifezo... Calligraphy of it, yeah. exactly. And so it really became an installation eventually, it transformed these motifs in different, uh, different elements. And I think that, I mean, even now we're looking at it just behind the view. I mean, uh, it's so interesting how you continuously stress in photography in so many different ways and creating continuously different compositions. And it's really not about a single image in my mind. You know, of course you can look at one in individual images as well, particularly when you do the, the billboard size, as in this case. You know, they become really iconic and very monumental. But I really feel that for you it's, it's important just to create all of these physical compositions with different type of photography, which kind of brings to life uh, narratives. Can you tell us how do you conceive your shows or how do you bring together the, the imagery or if there is a, a specific mm. process in that sense or if it's conditional to the space where you're exhibiting work or if you really feel that the body of work has, you know, comes together first and then it has to be installed into the space? Um, this comes from many things, I think. Uh, I am working on several long-term projects at the same time, so for two months I can be working on one, and then I push another one, and then I come back, and I work like this. And uh, my studio is the street, <laughs> or at home, so it's small. <laughs> so for years now I use like this small print that you can find on the booth. So this is my kind of raw material. And one day with uh, Cecile, we decided to frame it, and that's how, it's, I, started. how I started to exhibit the small prints because it's the the one I use uh, at home. And uh, and then when, um, to paste the large photograph by the street or in different places like in the La Cour, the courtyard, the project, it's to give. Uh, like I tried to share the experience I had when photographing when I was photographing a place. Mm -hmm. oh, um, I don't know if... That we're no. back now into... No, yeah, this now. is actually driving me crazy because every time I want to talk about something, it's yeah. gone. <laughs> no, the idea is really to create um, a window on the landscape or... Yeah, this monument could not be small, for example, before it has to be... It has to be huge it because it's yeah, huge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, since we are hosted in the context of an art fair, Generally, all artists hate to see their work in their art fair context. Mm. <laughs> What's your, maybe we can just kind of close a little bit with uh, some um, comment or notes on your relationship to either the art market or the art fair systems. How, like, you know, how do you see yourself in, in all of these different environments? Because obviously, you know, there are commercial galleries, there are public galleries, there are museums, there are uh, different type of institutions. There are schools, there are, you know, academic or uh, educational work and then obviously there is a market which is a quite big sector and it's propelling us all in one way or the other so what's do you have any any comment you want to share about your relationship of your work seen in the context of an art fair and it, you know is is a different place right and so also a relationship I guess to collectionism is also interesting like you know how how you see the work being entering collections, etc. I mean, it's something that artists need to start thinking about, right? <laughs> Not just only leaving them in the booth. What's your relationship to the art market? That's the simple question out of it. And how you see your work into that context. Uh, uh. I know it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's an uncomfortable question, but I think we, you know. <laughs> 
So, um, I was having a conversation with Nicholas Lowe about this uh, many years ago. And he said to me, um, uh, museum exhibitions are great. They, they uh, cement you somehow in, in art history. Um, but they do not sustain careers um, from a financial perspective. Um, my relationship with the market, I don't know, like, um, I the thing is I don't think about it much anymore because um, um, I guess this is because um, I've discovered that uh, anything can be bought, um, uh, which for me, uh, it used to be a bizarre concept, but I think I've resigned myself from trying to understand. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, an example would be uh, for uh, the show I did at Gasworks in London, um, where it was the, for the first time I did a wall carving. Um, uh, a collector requested I walk through the show with her, like privately on a Sunday morning. Um, so we met and I gave her a walk through the show. And then she uh, requested we walk back to the wall carving and then she asked me, how much is this? So I looked at her thinking, you can see this is the wall, right? Um, she was like, yeah, we can cut it out. And I was like, what? She was like, yeah, we can cut the wall. I was like, wow. So, um, she was discerning. <laughs> so I was like, okay. Um, but I mean, I never gave her an answer. Like, really, she, she wanted to know how much it was. And I was like, but... Um, and I think I've since realized that, I mean, anything can be sold. Um, and the thing is, I don't concern myself much anymore with the, the market. Of course, it's good to be in collections, um, uh, both private and public. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I think you gave us a good, <laughs> a, good, a good example, actually. Do you have any interesting relationship to other collectors or the way how like you know work has been collected because i mean they're also productive ones i mean there are some luminaries amongst the collectors who are really supportive and they become like you know really patrons and and friends eventually you know of artists as well i mean there's also very good philanthropy going on but obviously there's the other side of it of 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 the market which is speculation and it's really about the having like you know the hot name and making sure that they're going to be pumping up into investment so I'm not demonizing anything. I'm just really curious about, like, you know, because obviously I always look at this more from the eye of the institution, which is a sort of a filter, I guess, between the two realms. But I'm, I'm also very interested in understanding, like, you know, what's the response of the artists who, in proximity of art fairs, are demanded to produce more, to, you know, create outputs, to, 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 to actually give work to the gallery exhibition. So there's a lot of pressure, I guess, as well, right, from, from that relationship. And so we never really hear the, your story. I mean, the story of the artist other than seeing the work hang in the booth. So maybe that's the opportunity to give us some insight, <laughs> if you want to. Otherwise, I'm going to open the conversation to the floor. Um, not showing on a booth, uh, it's only for five days, so there is always frustration because you have been working on it for mm -hmm. weeks or months. And uh, what we try to do with Cecile is to show several parts of my work and the uh, way 
to be generous just to give more then uh, we don't know if it's going to work with the market <laughs> <laughs> we're hoping right <laughs> well is there anyone from the floor who has questions for our wonderful artist and i can come and bring your the mic or don't be shy Or for me, obviously, right? <laughs> Hi, I just wanted to uh, touch on one of the Mung's images that we've um, seen. It's the one with the crutches, and it, it looks like a Bible. Like, maybe you can just talk us through your, your thinking there. Uh, that piece is called Broken Wing. Um, I don't remember what I was thinking there, actually. Um, uh, no, I'm kidding. Um, so that's a work I made for um, the Deutsche Bank Award exhibition. Um, and for that project, I had researched um, an area in Simonstown um, called, it was formerly known as Luyolo Village. Um, not many people know about this. But um, so. Uh, some years ago, after I discovered the mural in Gulanjo's house, I hosted a workshop with uh, professionals from different fields, uh, from the government sector, curators, uh, academics, um, and I'd hosted this workshop with the intention that they would help me think um, strategically how to move forward. Uh, at the time, I'd been considering purchasing the house and turning it into a museum. And that's why I've been collecting Gladys and Kutlanji works um, over the years. Um, um, so in the workshop, uh, uh, my uncle was also present there. He commented that actually, which I'd never thought about, um, about he, he pointed out the fact that Kutlanji was painting uh, houses on hills and a lot of people thought these houses were depictions of houses in Kuguletu because uh, Gladys Mkutlanju along with my family um, a part of a generation of people who had been forcibly removed from Athlone in fact she used to live in Athlone with my family so my family actually knew her from Athlone before they were moved to Kuguletu during apartheid um, so a lot of the writing has been alluding to the fact that Mkutlanj was painting these houses in Kuguletu. But my uncle said there were no houses on the hill like the, she was depicting in the pictures. And that's something that struck me. Um, uh, and there was an architect who was actually in the, in the workshop. Um, and she sent me a picture um, a few weeks later of uh, a photograph of um, Luyolo village, which was um, uh, an area in Simonstown where black people lived, um, but this area was uh, removed. So we began research um, into the area with Ilza. In fact, out of the workshop that I hosted, um, uh, another collective was born called Pamphlet, uh, which was um, myself and Ilza Wolf, who's an architect. 
Um, so we did uh, research um, uh, on the area and the work, that body of work um, was premised on the research I was doing in Simonstown. Um, uh, hmm. I feel like there's a lot of things I want to say, but I'm not sure if they're coming out correctly. Um, yeah, so, um, oh, we also did a publication called Gladiolis, um, dedicated to Gladys Mkulanju and Gladys Thomas, who we published her work in the, as part of the Deutsche Bank publication. In, inside, there's another publication, uh, which is a pamphlet. Um, and there, so as part of this process, I also met a lot with uh, Gladys Thomas, who is now quite a forgotten poet. Um, her poetry came out in a collection with um, James Matthews in 71, and was, became the first banned book of poetry in South Africa. Um, so she helped me a lot in thinking about, and she's the one who told me about the mass graves. Um, so she helped me a lot in thinking about the, the, the show. Um, uh, yeah, the piece is called Broken Wing. Um, and I was referencing uh, the fall of man um, and the expulsion of Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. In fact, on the map um, of Simonstown, there's an area called Eden next to Loyola Village, which is something I was kind of um, entertaining conceptually in thinking about this region as Eden and the expulsion of black people from Simonstown to Kuguletu, which is where I grew up. Um, so hence the, the work in the Bibles um, and the crutch, which are made from school desks. But I've later destroyed the work, actually. Or not destroyed, but... Um, uh, uh, disassembled it and used the materials for something else. Yeah, and this is, is largely because, um, uh, which kind of speaks to the market again, uh, uh, it was hard for the gallery to sell the work because um, it's, it's quite a huge uh, installation piece, yeah. And also installing it is quite, it's very complex. Um, it's, it's super, super complex to install. Um, but also like, storage itself because it's so big is an issue so um well, that would have yeah. been a perfect museum piece actually yeah if yeah. for a more permanent display yeah. Yeah, i can imagine now having a a commercial it needs a commercial <laughs> life let's put it this way is there any other question yes okay so i really tried not to speak but um i'm still asking one question um I'm speaking a little bit, it's a bit selfish, uh, as I work in a museum, but because we've been addressing the market, I thought it was fair to think about museums, even though Kamang said museum shows are great, which I'm really happy to hear, because uh, working in a museum, I, I often think they're not. Um, but I was thinking, yeah, about, because actually it's a question I'm asking myself, so it's a question with S, um, but I wanted to hear you both on that, since are you here? Um, are you concerned about, I mean, you both kind of operate from um, very profound context of history, multi-layered, 
histories that navigate and circulate as well, but um, that need some kind of grounding, uh, education. Um, I mean, South Africa, of course, and I'm more familiar with France, um, even though I try not to spend too much time in France, but um, even colonial history is not, we don't really learn about our own colonial history in France. So um, how do you, and are you concerned about the fact that your work, even though it can be read, read in many ways and it's multi-layered, um, is mis can be misunderstood uh, or wrongly framed or yeah I mean since they you know they belong to specific places to context to they need you need sensitivity and you need also kind of educational background or at least just it needs to they need to be grounded in in a history that is always if I look at the history, the 20th century history, which is displayed at the Centre Pompidou, which is the museum I operate from, there's no space for like even mentioning, you know, the independence of Algeria. So this history is not there. So how do you, I mean, do you think about that? Are you concerned about, about this? The way, I mean, things can be translated or misunderstood Well, um, for me, I think uh, I like misunderstandings, actually. <laughs> um, I think they can be productive, depending on how one kind of uh, takes this. In fact, there's a work which is called, um, uh, I have a text I wrote called A Grave Misunderstanding. Um, uh, it reads, Sin 55, A Grave Misunderstanding. And there I was playing on the word grave as in serious, but also like grave as in the burial. And uh, this was referencing to the performance piece where I dug and uh, discovered the bones. But also in, when I was in Ireland um, on a research trip, uh, I had a dream that I found bones um, in a pot plant, uh, but they were infant bones. Uh, this was meant to be my last night in Limerick. Um, and Goyo had invited me there. She was curating the Limerick Biennale. Um, so I had this dream, I found these bones. And because I had found bones before, like I was quite edgy the whole day and it was meant to be my last day. So I told Goyo that um, I asked her if I could stay another night because I had this very unsettling dream and I don't know what it meant. Um, and when I told her the dream, she said, um, oh, she told, then she told me about the history of the Magdalene laundries, which um, in Ireland they used to take uh, women who, who are either considered too beautiful, um, young women who would be seen as, uh, who would possibly tempt married men into cheating, or if you had a child out of wedlock, um, they would send you to these uh, laundries where you would work there for the rest of your life, um, basically as a prisoner type thing. Um, and the story was that a few years uh, ago, uh, while um, uh, preparing to build a building, they were digging and they found this mass grave of like infant bones. Because um, the church, sometimes uh, the women who were pregnant, they lived in horrible conditions and they would um, 
the, some of the babies would die at birth or they would die like really uh, very young as infants. Um, so Goyo told me this and then she took me to the art school um, which uh, formerly the building used to be a la uh, Magdalene laundry. Um, so of course I didn't find any bones but I think that the dream was speaking to, to this history. Um, and then so I wrote this text, I'm talking about the misunderstanding, now it says, uh, scene 55, a grave misunderstanding. I once mistook odontophobia as a fear of death. Upon reading its meaning twice, I realized it was an un abnormal fear of teeth. Um, this is curious because an artist once said, teeth are the only bones that show. While digging in someone's gray backyard some few years ago in Kuguletu, I discovered bones. Where I come from, people go to a special school to learn how to read bones. Once read, these bones are said to unveil the, the, unveil the past and or uncover the future. Um, so for me, the misunderstanding, I, I welcome misunderstandings. Uh, I know obviously that um, we don't see the same things in the same things that we see um, collectively. Um, and this is also, I mean, I think the question of uh, context and being understood or misunderstood is one that, um, for me, my own existence and every articulation um, can be misunderstood. Um, someone could misunderstand how I'm speaking now about generating the conversation, and that's a risk that we, co we are constantly taking. Um, but I think, for me, what's more important is to, is to speak about um, the narratives that I speak about, the histories that I've been searching for, um, the history that I wasn't taught um, to bring it to the fore. Um, yeah, but now I think uh, I'm tired of history, to be honest. So um, that's why I'm moving into love, um, try and. But also I think, um, uh, and I've, this is a, it's quite a, a, a challenge for me because uh, I was chatting to an artist in New York recently and he said, we need to create different images of ourselves. Um, and which I agree with him. And again, I remember having conversations with Timmy Morrissey and he, he likes to reiterate the fact that we are not because of apartheid or our history, but we are despite of it. Um, so, yeah, and anyway, I think I'm going to keep quiet. <laughs> Do you want to add something as well? Yeah, but Alicia, you know, and the... Um, I think all, all the work I do is um, I'm just trying to fill the gap um, coming from my education and uh, I think the things that we do, didn't find into, into the books when we were younger and uh, I'm just working on this, on this part of memory so maybe our works are just an option to the book and um, just bringing... Um, annex to the history or to to think about it in another way and uh, if there is misunderstanding it does not matter it's just um, 
like the war she faced of peace. I think it was misunderstood in Dakar, but um, <laughs> let's see in 10 years. <laughs> well, I think this is a, with both uh, answers, I think this is a close for today, because I think it's about time. So thank you very much for joining us, and most importantly, thank you both for being here this afternoon. And I would thank also you. like to thank uh, Laura Vinci, the director of, of the fair, as well as Tumelo Mozaka, who organized this series of talks and who are, have been generously inviting us here today. So thank you very much, and, and uh, have a wonderful thank afternoon. Thank you all for coming. Thank you. Thank you to the panelists and to the Investor Cape Town Art Fair for letting us publish this talk on Unframed. Don't forget to follow Unframed on Instagram and Facebook and subscribe on Apple Music or wherever you get your podcasts.